This is Bold Dominion, an explainer for state politics in a changing Virginia. I'm Nathan Moore. When it comes to climate and the environment, we know a few things. We know that the average temperature around the world keeps going up. We know that in an average summer, we're seeing more really hot days in Virginia than a decade ago, which had more really hot days than two decades ago, which had more than three decades ago, and so on. In fact, that average keeps going up. We know that more and more monstrous hurricanes have been making landfall in the United States. We know that huge and uncontrolled wildfires are burning across California and the American West. Here in Virginia, many of us have been shielded from the worst effects of climate change so far. But we know, or we should know, that the planet is burning. And that without major policy changes, it's going to get much worse. So what's a state to do? What policies can Virginia enact? After all, this is a global issue, and the operations of one mid-sized state can feel rather small in the grand scheme of things. Well, for many years, Virginia's answer was not much. The state wasn't doing a whole lot to address the root issues around climate change. But with Democratic majorities in the General Assembly for the last two years, that has started to shift. Lawmakers and activists are championing the fight to keep our planet fit for human habitation. So how exactly does meaningful environmental change happen? The environmental community has agreed that we do not want this sea change to be done in a way that enforces, reinforces the status quo. Because a lot of the inequities and injustices we see currently can be directly tied to historically how we've powered our economy. That's Nerissa Turner. She works for the Virginia Conservation Network as the Policy and Campaigns Manager for Clean Energy and Climate. In the second half of today's episode, she'll tell us more about the work being done in Virginia as we move toward a greener and more equitable economy. But first, we turn to Virginia Mercury reporter Sarah Vogelsong. She spoke with Bolt Dominion producer Aryan Balu to give us a breakdown of where Virginia's environmental policy is right now and the inner workings of our energy economy. There's been a lot of big changes in Virginia in the last two years um, when Democrats took control of both uh, chambers of the General Assembly back in 2020. So one of the big pieces of legislation um, that we are still seeing unfold today is the Virginia Clean Economy Act, which passed the legislature in 2020. And what that did was commit the state's electric utilities to make the electric grid carbon free by 2050. I think previously there wasn't really a statewide recognition that climate change was even happening. And the BCEA was very much framed as a climate change bill. Um, So some of the top level things that it does is that it joins Virginia to a carbon market. What ended up happening was that Virginia joined the Regional Greenhouse Gas Alliance which is, I believe at this point, 10 states in the Mid-Atlantic and New England regions. And essentially it puts a price on carbon for power producers. So this applies to all power plants. Um, They have to pay to emit carbon. And then the proceeds from those payments come back to the state. So Virginia just got its first round of payments this spring and is still putting in place some of the frameworks for how those funds are going to be specifically spent. The Virginia Clean Economy Act also set 
what's called a renewable portfolio standard, but basically means that every year the electric utilities have to get a certain specific percentage of their power from renewable sources. Um, there is also a energy efficiency standard that was part of that bill, which just basically requires the utilities to hit targets for how much energy can kind of be saved by other methods. Okay, so you just mentioned a lot of different things that have come about in the last couple of years. Where does that stack up relative to what um, sort of climate and energy activists have been have been trying to push things? Yeah, uh, absolutely. There was and still continues to be, I think, a lot of tension between climate activists in terms of how far and how fast this transition from fossil fuels to renewables should go. And what I think is going to be really interesting to see is how this sort of federal shift that we're seeing on energy plays into that. Because obviously when the Clean Economy Act was passed, we were under the Trump administration and there was a very different focus on energy issues. And so, you know, Virginia was the first state in the South to join a carbon market to establish this renewable portfolio standard and the energy efficiency resource standard. And also to set this sort of what at the time for the South was considered this aggressive path towards 2045, 2050 decarbonization. Now, of course, we have the Biden administration, which is pushing for 2030, 2035 targets. And that's really, I think, shifted some of the conversation. I don't think that people are quite sure how that's all going to shake out. But there have also been activists in Virginia who were opposed to the Clean Economy Act because they wanted something faster. That, of course, is the Virginia Green New Deal Coalition. They have put forward their version of that bill two years running. Uh, in 2020, it was basically just died in committee. I know that there is also a feeling amongst many of the supporters of the Clean Economy Act that it was a huge fight just to get that through the legislature and that there was no chance of the Green New Deal getting through. With all this going on, what has Dominion been up to in the last couple of years um, to, to reflect that? Dominion has made some commitments of its own. So they also independently established a decarbonization target of 2050. There's two really big moves that Dominion has made in recent years that are notable. Um, the first, of course, is last July um, when Dominion very publicly canceled the Atlantic Coast Pipeline and sold off its the majority of its gas transmission and storage assets. That was a really big pivot that obviously got a lot of national attention. The Atlantic Coast Pipeline was a huge project. It's supposed to be... 600 miles long. I think it was up to $8 billion by the time that it was canceled and, you know, caused a huge amount of political controversy in Virginia. And I think that a lot of people really interpreted that cancellation as a clear sign that Dominion is pivoting away from fossil fuels and towards renewables. Um, I think that is certainly how Dominion has cast it in investor calls. And so related to that, the second really big move that Dominion has made is its commitment to offshore wind. And it first announced, I think, these much grander plans to build this 2.6 gigawatt wind farm off the coast of Virginia Beach. It first announced those about two years ago. Um, but what is unique really about Dominion's plans is that 
all of the other wind farms that are in the works up and down the East Coast are led by non-utility companies. They're led by offshore wind developers. When is that planned to kind of come to completion? 2026, I believe, is when it's planned to be fully deployed. We're talking about Dominion, uh, and I want to kind of delve into uh, the the regional, the capacity market. Uh, I barely know what that means, uh, but I would love to try and tackle it and, and, and wrap my head around what that what's going on there. Yeah. The capacity market, I think, is a really complicated topic, um, but essentially, Virginia is part of this regional electric grid, as is basically every state and every part of the country except for Texas. So Virginia is part of what's called the PJM interconnection, and it's a regional transmission organization. But there are several markets that PJM runs. And essentially, this is how our energy system operates is through markets. And the point of that is to bring the costs of energy down. So power producers will bid in the power that they have to offer. Essentially, what PJM will do is figure out the lowest price that they can get the power that they need for. But there's different markets that are associated with different sort of planning targets. So there's what's called a day ahead energy market, where what's being traded is enough energy is that's anticipated to be needed for the next day. There's all sorts of different constructs that these markets have set up. But one of the markets that PJM has is called the capacity market. And what essentially it is, is ensuring that there is enough energy in the long term. So PJM's capacity market is a three-year market. It's looking at what are we going to need in three years? Let's make sure that that power is in place. When PJM's capacity market was created, there has always been this other option for utilities that they can opt out of the capacity market and use this mechanism, which is called the fixed resource requirement or FRR. And it hadn't been heavily used, but about, I guess, a year and a half ago, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission passed an extremely controversial rule. It was called the Minimum Offer Price Rule, MOPR. And what it essentially did was to make a lot of renewables not competitive on the marketplace. And so there was, and again, still is, a lot of tension between states in PJM who have these clean energy goals. And MOPR, which essentially ensures that those resources won't clear the market. Uh, what is the kind of reasoning for that, for MOPR coming into existence then? The reasoning that was provided was that it would provide a level playing field for all resources. Right. And so what it did was it set a minimum price for all resources that it considers to be state subsidized. It had a very expansive definition of what a state subsidy was, which essentially made it apply to anything that a legislature incentivized. So really any renewable. You know, obviously the attraction for many people of renewables has been they're cheap, or certainly solar is cheap. So it really just made them uncompetitive. And what that would mean is that if those resources don't clear the capacity market, if they don't get selected by PJM as 
three years from now, we're going to be depending on you. They don't get paid by the market for being there. So Mm -hmm. they're losing these payments. And it also means that for utilities who are planning for the future, they're having to meet their state's clean energy mandates, but they're trying to get payments from PJM to have enough resources for the market down the road. And so one of the concerns with Moper had been that these companies were their customers were going to be paying twice. They're going to be paying for clean energy, and then they're also going to be paying for these long-term energy commitments that are not coming from clean energy. So there were a number of states and utilities that were very wary of what this would mean for the markets and did talk publicly about pulling out of PJM's capacity market. So that's been a topic of conversation, well, I guess since the decision was handed down. Since the Biden administration came in, FERC has signaled that it is planning to either heavily revise or move away from the MOPR. So I I know I heard from some people I talked to that there was some confusion as to why Dominion would decide to pull out of the market now when MOPR is probably not going to be around, certainly not in this form for a long time, because the capacity market decision is a five-year decision. They're committed to not being in it for the next five years. Right. So I think that's sorry. I think that's kind of the the bit of new information, though, is that Dominion pulled out as of uh, a couple of weeks ago. Yes, right? it's easy to get lost in the weeds. On yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So, so what? Yeah. So what? What was their their reasoning if if they provided any? Yeah, their reasoning is that with the Moper, it was going to make it very hard to meet the renewables targets that they had, and under the fixed resource requirement, you know, they still have to prove to FERC that they will have this capacity available. Uh, The fact that they've pulled out of the market, what does that change for, you know, Virginia citizens? I think the short answer is we don't completely know. It was a decision that I think caught a lot of people off guard. I mean, I will say that Dominion has told regulators in the past that it was a matter of when, not if, they would exit the capacity market. So the idea of them leaving did not come out of nowhere. But I think the fact that it happened now, there was a sense of surprise that this had occurred. And Dominion does not need, under Virginia law, regulators to sign off in that decision. Dominion is still part of the PJM interconnection. This does not separate us from the regional grid. So I do want to make that clear. Right. And sorry, remind me what it means for it to be still part of the PJM, but uh, out of out of the capacity market. I mean, we are just we're still part of a larger grid where energy is flowing, you know, throughout this, all of the states that are involved in PJM. Virginia is not, you know, going it alone or, or by any means on energy. This just means that in terms of long term planning, Dominion is n- not participating in that market. So I think that the impacts that we're going to see are what does this mean for energy prices in general? What does this mean for renewables developers and the price of renewables in Virginia? I think it's going to take a while for people to work all of those those things out. Sarah Vogelsong is a reporter at Virginia Mercury. Stick around. In the second half of today's episode, we've got Narissa Turner explaining some of the -the boots-on-the-ground environmental work happening here in Virginia. You're listening to Bold Dominion, a state politics explainer for a changing Virginia. Visit us online at bolddominion.org. Have a friend who's trying to get into state politics? Well, tell them about this show. And then subscribe. 
Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever fine podcasts are served up. Hey, and while you're there, go ahead and give us a five-star review. We love those. Bold Dominion is a member of Virginia Audio Collective, online at virginiaaudio.org. Check out all the podcasts from the collective, from science to history to music to community affairs. We amplify the voices of people in our community and help them tell stories that matter. You can listen and subscribe at virginiaaudio.org. Well, a moment ago, we heard journalist Sarah Vogelsong describe the breadth of recent changes in Virginia's environmental policy. So what does passing this legislation actually entail? In the second half of this episode, we hear from Nerissa Turner, Policy and Campaigns Manager for Clean Energy and Climate at the Virginia Conservation Network. Jumping jumping right into it, what do you do with the uh, Virginia Conservation Network? What does that work entail? I'll kind of give you the, the rough year schedule. During uh, the winter, we are usually actively lobbying and advocating for environmental policies to legislators while they're working on legislation. When we are out of session, sort of what's considered the quote-unquote off-season from the end of winter uh, through to the start of next winter, we start the, the start laying the foundation for getting our partners together to figure out what we want to work on for the following General Assembly session. So in spring, we start with sort of regional meetings with our partners. We kind of divide the, the state up along rough regional boundaries. Uh, you often see among different regions of the state, they have different environmental issues because the landscape is different, the history is different. So we start in the spring with meetings around, among our regional partners. And that sort of gives us an idea of what issues kind of were very salient during the prior General Assembly session and then what people think they might want to work on for the following General Assembly session. From there, then we have what we call like uh, work group planning meetings. So we divvy up our work um, along three main buckets of work. So in my case, climate and clean energy is a big broad bucket. There's uh, water and land conservation to some extent wildlife and then transportation and land use. So we have uh, large planning meetings towards the later end of spring. We actually just finished those. And those planning meetings launch our uh, briefing book process, which we publish one every year. And this is kind of the heads up notice to not just legislators, but people across the Commonwealth who might be following environmental policy. So that process continues through till uh, usually till the beginning of August. And then from there, from August till the end of the year, we're basically, that's sort of the campaign part. So that when uh, General Assembly uh, starts in January, we hit the ground running. What are the current irons in the fire? Two sessions ago, we passed the Clean Economy Act, uh, along with Solar Freedom, which is a package of legislation to increase solar generation in the Commonwealth and legislation to officially join the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. What we saw both last year, and then I'm, I'm hoping a stronger front this year is trying to bolster and make stronger some of the things that we really got started with those pieces of legislation. So last year it was last general assembly session. It was it was rough, right? We were right after session ended in 2020, coronavirus. Yeah. Uh, it fundamentally changed the way that we did a lot of our processes. It changed the way that the general assembly session ran. There had to be a special session. But technically, there were two. There have been two special sessions now since 2020, and it 
put a damper on a lot of the work we had hoped to do. I will say that I, I think we still got some wins, but I think it's still the same in that I think we're going to see more policy on strengthening provisions around solar energy generation, specifically around distributed energy generation. So that is not necessarily just these these large utility scale uh, solar farms that we they're just seeing like explosion in growth across the Commonwealth, but really trying to figure out how we can increase the amount of solar on already like impacted or built environments, um, seeing improvements to having a clean energy economy. How can we ensure that that transition happens very equitably uh, and in a way that is not only is it great that we have all this renewable energy, it's great for the environment, but in a way that's also great for like people's bottom lines, making sure that uh, as again, as we make this commitment to clean energy, uh, sort of this concept of what I feel like it's been referred to as several different things, uh, utility accountability, rate reform, um, a whole host of things, but it's basically just saying that like, we don't necessarily want to do things in the status quo way. We want more clean energy generation. But we also want it in a way that's like fair for people who have to pay for that generation and also so that everyone has access to that energy generation generated. So you, you mentioned that we, we had some wins, even despite sort of the very abbreviated, very tough session this time around. What, uh, you know, can you dive in? What did that look like? Yeah, we got several bills that dealt with like clarifying language of things, which is maybe kind of boring, but it's like really important. Uh, oftentimes when you're when you're working with like sometimes really long, wonky pieces of legislation, uh, you will find that you pass piece of legislation, you think your work is done, everyone excited, and then you realize like on the ground when you actually try to implement a thing, it didn't work out the way you wanted to, or people feel like they're still left out. So a couple of bills that we got was one on clarifying language around power purchase agreements, which is a way for um, potentially like local governments. I think most commonly it's used in the Commonwealth for like schools. It's a it's an affordable way for them to basically work their third party to get solar panels onto their buildings, but they don't have to put up the upfront investment, but they still get to benefit from the cheaper ener energy generation. There was an issue in prior legislation that said, okay, like Dominion, APCO, um, and Old Dominion Power, which I think is technically known as Kentucky Utilities, we said they had to do that, but it was unclear for Appalachian Power and um, APCO uh, and Old Dominion Power whether or not they had to actually offer that to what's known as a non-jurisdictional customer. And so we got language clarifying that, like, in fact, they do have to offer that. They do have to make that available to them. Um, and that has a bit of an equity component because you're talking about those um, utilities service a part of the state that's oftentimes it's it's very much considered like economically disadvantaged it houses some communities of color um we also got legislation authorizing localities to create what's known as like a green bank we got approval for the what's called i think it's called like the, the known as like the brightfields act but it uh, basically established a grant program for funding the creation of like renewable energy uh, generation on abandoned coal mines or previously developed sites, but then had been abandoned and, and need to have some reclamation efforts on them in order for them to be available. The caveat there, though, is that it was created, which is great. Uh, there is no money in it <laughs> because the idea is that hopefully, uh, with the, particularly now that we have a change in uh, federal administration, that potentially there might be money that comes onto the Fed. So it was a great way to be like, we recognize that 
funds are limited, but if there's a way to go ahead and just like set up and be ready to utilize federal dollars, we want to do that. Oh, we also got clarification. We got some good clarifying language on uh, another piece of legislation. It was a portion of the Clean Economy Act, um, what's known as the PIP program, percentage of income payment program. So this was a mechanism that was uh, supposed to cap and, and maintain affordability for low income ratepayers. As again, as we put uh, more clean energy generation onto the grid, making sure that they they, their bills didn't disproportionately increase so they could still afford their energy. Um, and there's an argument to be made that that should happen regardless. And again, it was an issue where we thought we got it in, we did it, it was clean. And then we realized that there were still some questions around uh, who could qualify for that program, just making it easier to implement so we could actually get a program that can start helping helping people as soon as possible. Zooming out to the, the Virginia Clean Economy Act, something that passed a couple years ago, could you tell me a little bit about sort of what that is and the broader why why it's needed in terms of energy and climate things? Yeah. So, uh, and the thing I always have to remind folks is that Clean Economy Act, as great as it was, it's only one piece of the puzzle, right? Because it only it only deals with like utility generated electricity. It didn't tackle uh, transportation. It doesn't tackle independent power generation. It also largely leaves out electric cooperatives and things like that. So there are broad sectors of the economy that are not covered within the Virginia Clean Economy Act. <laughs> but it was necessary because I think there has been a recognition we needed to do something. And so this is kind of our foothold. This is like our big, bold first step. Um, and it was important because when you're building infrastructure and you're working with energy generation, oftentimes you are building infrastructure that costs tons of money and it's intended to last for decades. And hopefully as, as people know that that window of time that we have to effectively tackle climate change is getting smaller and smaller. <laughs> so now that depending on who you ask, we have anywhere from a single decade to maybe a couple more decades, but the reality is we need to be doing something like right now. And so the idea behind the Clean Economy Act is to basically start those steps and put in those targets to both sort of increase the amount of renewable energy that we are putting into the grid um, while simultaneously ramping down the fossil fuel generating resources we have here in the state. But then within that also it has some provisions for increasing energy efficiency because the only thing better than a quote unquote green generated uh, electron of energy is that electron you just didn't have to generate in the first place. What are, you know, the the ideals for things that we would want to see done in the next couple of years? If I had to summarize, I think there we are going to want to do this faster. Like I said, Clean Economy Act was like the first big bold step, but there were I think there were many people who were like this is not not fast enough, not strong enough, all these different things. And I think quite honestly, I think many people who worked on it realized that, but we needed something. You have to get something on the book so then you can keep pushing. The other thing is that now we've got to tackle all the other sectors. So uh, last year, and I didn't speak to this because this isn't, this, actually it touches my portfolio of policy work, but it, it actually falls uh, with one of my other uh, colleagues. Uh, transportation is a big thing. Because even though we did a lot of work on energy, energy, I think, 
in the Commonwealth, I think it's maybe a little over a third, like electricity production is about a third of our emissions. Transportation is actually the largest. So tackling transportation, but then not all, only transportation, I think there's now starting to be some rumblings and movement on tackling the built environment as well, because that has carbon implications as well. What does that mean exactly? So like buildings, every time you have to pour concrete, build a thing, that's the, those are emissions associated with that. Those are a little harder to deal with, I will say, just because some of it is emissions generated like here in Virginia soil. A lot of it is not. A lot of it has to do with both national and international markets, interstate stuff, because even though maybe you poured the concrete here, getting the component parts, having it traveled here may not have happened in the state. So faster tackling carbon in other parts of the economy, and then just making sure this is all done in an equitable way. The environmental community has agreed that we do not want this sea change to be done in a way that enforces, reinforces the status quo, because a lot of the inequities and injustices we see currently can be directly tied to historically how we've powered our economy, how we've sort of moved along and the way that we've defined progress and building bigger and better things that also required more carbon pollution. We now want to change and dismantle that. Narissa Turner is the Policy and Campaigns Manager for Clean Energy and Climate at the Virginia Conservation Network. Thank you to her and also Sarah Vogelsong for joining us this week. Thanks also to our editor for this episode, Katherine Hansen. And one last thanks to producer Aryan Balu. You've heard Aryan's voice on this podcast off and on for a year and a half. I'm pleased to report that Aryan graduated from UVA this year, and he's been hired at an NPR affiliate station in Illinois called WVIK. I'm looking forward to following Aryan's bright future. My name is Nathan Moore, and I'm the host of Bold Dominion. You can find us online at bolddominion.org. And don't forget to subscribe. It's just a click away.